Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Now this is the second episode in our ESG series and I'm joined today by Clara Bagnall-George who is one of the construction and engineering industry's rising stars. Uh, Clara works at Elementor Consulting and Louisa Bowles, our other guest, is a partner at Hawkins Brown and their head of sustainability. Now the duo are two of the brightest stars, brightest minds in sustainability. Uh, they've both played a critical role in driving forward policy change around the measurement and benchmarking of real estate's carbon footprint and, and will be many, uh, be many, many other projects uh, that we'll talk about in this interview that they're, that they're helping uh, move forward. Now we'll also discuss how design and engineering are evolving to help investors solve some of the challenges we all face right now and look at some of the projects being undertaken to redefine policy. And one of those is LETI, which stands for the London Energy Transformation Initiative. Um, and that's something that Clara and Louisa have both played a critical role in shaping. It's an initiative that's had a direct impact on London's planning policies and which could well have uh, a national impact if it's adopted by MHCLG as well. We'll also discuss some of the blind spots that investors and developers haven't woken up to yet, such as the fact that many could be grossly underestimating the embodied carbon of buildings by ignoring the full extent and full impact of building and engineering systems. But anyway, look, let's crack on uh, and get straight into the interview. So there's been a lot of discussion around how we reach net zero. Clara, what does net zero mean to you? Um, and is there actually any real consensus around this? Because many, many people making many, many promises. And, and, and for mm-hmm. anybody listening to this, uh, they're going to want to know, well, what is it we're promising to do? Mm-hmm. And this is a topic I've been kind of focusing and really interested in in the last couple of years. So Louisa and I are really um, both both part of Letty, and as Letty, we have been um, gathering consensus on this and, and bringing together alignment. So I would say there is a real clear definition of, of what we mean, especially when we're focusing on operational carbon. And I suppose for me, be a building that is net zero is a building that meets our climate emergency, that's aligned with meeting our 1.5 degree target. Um, and so we take quite a scientific approach to that. So we think about, OK, there's a finite renewable resource uh, in the UK, which means there's a finite amount of renewables that's available for buildings, for homes, for offices. And so you can really easily understand um, therefore, what your energy budget is for different typologies. So for a home, to be net zero, you need to meet um, an energy budget of 35 kilowatt hours a square metre a year. Um, and that can be done through having a really efficient form, so an, an efficient fabric, having good levels of air tightness, having efficient systems, having some PV on your roof. Um, and then that means that you're kind of your building or your home is operating um, within an energy energy budget that allows all buildings in the UK to be net zero. And and, and obviously, uh, it's going to be slightly different and more complicated in commercial buildings. So how would you apply the same approach in a mixed use commercial building that's going to have a blend of different uses within it? You take, you, yeah, you take the same approach. It's just you, you'd split the different use classes, so you have different energy budgets for the different areas of the scheme. With with commercial offices, um, it's more about um, really reducing the loads in the space, um, reducing the internal loads. It's about having demand control ventilation, mixed mode opening windows in summer. So it's it's more about um, about that than than trapping the heat in. 
And so, so just by background, you're you're both an engineer and an architect, which... Uh... Oh, no. <laughs> so I would say um, initially I was really interested in architecture. And so I started the kind of architectural training. So I've done done part one architecture. And then I switched um, to engineering because I realised that's, that's more where... Um, my skills lie. Um, so I then I then kind of did a master's engineering, and became a chartered engineer a couple of years ago with Sipsi. But it means you you can it does mean you can switch, doesn't it, between between the different worlds yeah. of 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 the rather abstract of, of of architecture and 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 the reality check that I guess the engineers have to give when you're in early project meetings. That's right. Um, and also I'm interested in design. You know, I, I'm interested in the, in the kind of whole whole aspect, and so um, I'm engaged with the whole process. Um, and and what what do you find? What are some of the challenges that that you find able to help soothe be having that having that that foot in both camps? So what are some of the things that that you you, you might not be able to do if you didn't have that grounding in architecture? I suppose it's um, it's really understanding why um, architects are pushing for certain things. You know, I, I care about the, the internal spaces and and the kind of um, the reason behind certain things, I understand them, and so we put forward solutions that that are relevant to that. Um, and that means that it, it happens a lot a lot quicker, and we come to a, a solution a lot faster because of that mm. background. And, and and let's bring in Louisa. So Louisa, we talked a little bit about Letty. Um, just for people that that might think that sounds like some kind of mythical monster, do you want to maybe just explain to us a bit about Letty, what it is, how it comes together, and and, and the work that you and Clara have been doing on that? to really shape policy uh, in this area over the last couple of years? Yeah, so um, I got heavily and more heavily involved in Letty about a year ago, and I suppose it's Clara's passion for that crossover where embodied and operational, embodied carbon and operational carbon crossover. So Clara gave a really... So just, just, so just, just before we go on, just explain to people what those two types of carbon mean, because lots of people... Um, aren't as smart as you guys um and and won't know what these things are so I, yeah i think that's um that, that's a good question so i suppose i was going to say that um clara gave a really eloquent description there of operational carbon and meeting net zero carbon targets through operational energy and, and really drilling that down um and what we've been concentrating on as well at letty i'll give a description of letty in a minute but in terms of the the different carbon loads. Um, embodied carbon is the carbon emissions that um, I sometimes think of as they're a bit more difficult, they're a bit more abstract, they're a lot harder to see, although they're to do with the physicality of the building. So embodied carbon is all of the carbon that's emitted by constructing the building, manufacturing the products, refurbishing them, maintaining them, and then disposing of them at the end of life. Um, and for me, they're the unseen carbon emissions, I think, in some of the policy decisions that are being taken at the moment, yeah. uh, which is why Letty, I think, are doing a great job of, of highlighting how pressing the issue is going to become once we start decarbonizing the grid. And that's, so that's really some of the work that I've been looking at with Clara and, the, and a lot of the work stream leads over the last year. Um, and a bit of a description about Letty itself. Um, so... It stands for London Energy Transformation Initiative, but it's, it's certainly not London-centric. I think it was born there, and, and that's inherent in its name, but it certainly is not um, at all 
it's a really a UK-wide body and more so even in the last year when we've all been yeah. working from home. Um, it's been much easier to connect. Um, geography seems to matter less. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, what difference is that? So, so, what difference is that making? Sorry to interrupt you. What, what difference is 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 that making for developers, planners in London? Just to so what? What's the outcome of 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 these of this work? I think Letty is a complementary work stream to a lot of other work going on. Um, and where Letty comes in, and I think it's distinct, is that it pushes for the best standards that are possible. So because it's not, it's an apolitical organisation and it's a group of industry, multidisciplinary industry professionals coming together and being really passionate about driving up standards. Um, it, you know, we, it doesn't have a certain politics, so it's much easier to be freer, I think, with, with setting aspirational targets. And I think the, um, the industry has latched on to a lot of the guidance that was issued last year last january there was um, two major publications um, mm. issued and they've had they've just found them really really helpful because there was a um, a dearth of information about some of these topics and also letty started to set out a roadmap to how we might get to zero carbon and it was ambitious and um but it needed to be because yeah. it needed to highlight the urgency so Clara, Clara, sorry, go on. I think what's really exciting um, is that there was no definition of good in the industry. And that's what Letty were really trying to push for and clarify. And I think we really did that. Um, And we're just um, undertaking a bit of a survey to understand how many buildings are actually in the design that are meeting these targets. And Letty will produce um, information on that in the upcoming weeks. But I can say it's in the thousands. You know, a lot of buildings are in the design process right now are meeting these ambitious net zero um, Letty targets in terms of the energy use, in terms of the embodied carbon, which means the industry is redefining good, you know, and anybody who's not um, aligning with those targets will be behind, you know, when, when the when the buildings are built out. Mm. So, and the impact, you know, we're seeing the, the, the targets in, in policy, we're seeing the targets in, in best practice, I see the targets in briefs all the time. So it's really given the industry a hook to define good, which um, I've been blown away by um, how much has been used, but that's been great. And 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 day to day within Elementor, you do quite a lot of advisory work, don't you? With, with all sorts of different kinds of clients, from large tech firms to uh, to public bodies. You're, you're working with TfL on on the property development side. Tell us That's about right. about some of that. How, how does that how does that fit in uh, to this? Because obviously, I guess if if you're able to define and advise where the policy landscape's going, that makes you better informed to advise investors and developers that might be looking to develop using those very policies. That's right. And I think we, we put the the targets that Letty have set in in a context for for developers, for local authorities, for investors about actually what that would mean for, for those projects. Um, and they mean slightly different things. And we very quickly analyse what it means in terms of your systems, your fabric, what that effect would have on running costs, on capital costs. And so we're really clear about the implications of those of those um, meeting those targets, which means that um, developers can really understand, okay, if I'm setting this in my brief for this master plan or, or for all of my projects, sometimes with local authorities, we look at um, setting their design guidance for projects that they they manage and they can say, so, okay, if I set this in my brief, this, this has this financial implication, it has this carbon implication. And we, we give them, a, you know, we show them the levels between now and zero carbon and, and, and you know, um, they understand the implication of each one and um, mostly they choose the, um, the the kind of most robust option zero carbon because they can understand why we've chosen that why we've got there and, and the benefits 
Mm. And obviously, when we're talking a lot about operational use of buildings, but how are how is policy evolving to try and understand the whole life carbon impact of a building and, and its operation? And what are you doing? And how are you thinking about the, the ways to measure this? So from a, from a wider perspective, we're really excited um, that the GLA is implementing its whole life carbon assessment policy for referable schemes which means that um, all referral schemes will have to undertake these whole life carbon assessments. Um, we've been liaising and, and collaborating with them um, on that and um, as part of Letty and as part of Elementor. Um, and then drilling down into the uh, into kind of an area of specialism, which is quite um, specific, so bear with me, but I'm, I'm because at Elementor we're MEP engineers, I really am interested in the embodied carbon of MEP. You know, um, the last couple of years we've been driving this shift um, towards heat pumps, and I thought, okay, if I'm push if we're pushing this as Letty and as Elementor, we need to really understand the full implication of this. And that's when I started my journey about understanding embodied carbon and realizing the wider um, issues around selecting different plants. Um, and then we did, did some research and published some publications on that, um, and soon came to realize that there was no industry consensus or standard of of calculating embodied carbon MEP and it was quite complex it took a long time so there were really loads of barriers of really understanding this so we've been focusing at Elementa over the last few years to really develop that um, and we've come to find some really you know we've been really shocked uh, you know we found that in retrofit schemes um, embodied carbon so MEP could account for 80% of the embodied carbon of a retrofit scheme and this is a massive figure and most people in the industry are not calculating the embodied carbon of MEP you know and and that's a worry because we don't people are not don't fully understand the the carbon impact of of such systems um so we've been working with SIPSI and we've recently published um TM65 which is a calculation methodology of how you calculate embodied carbon of MEP in a really simple way you know so it's really clear this is what you ask for the manufacturer this is what you do this is how you report it um and the idea is that we can all bring kind of skill up as an industry and understand the rules of thumb of how you reduce embodied carbon of MEP. So, so does that mean does that then mean that, that a developer wanting to to get planning consent for a refurbishment would have to achieve a certain level uh, of embodied carbon they would have to have a certain benchmarking of what they're putting in the buildings so, that... so right now in London um, if it is a referable scheme that need that, that requires that you just need to benchmark it you there's not a target that you need to meet you just need to you just need to understand and calculate the the embodied carbon the operational carbon um, so so and I think the idea but we don't we don't know where we're going is that policy will move towards creating targets but you can't go to a target straight away you can't go to a target if people just don't understand what that target means for them. So at the moment in the industry, we're about creating an understanding. Um, what Louise has um, been doing at Hawkins Brown with HBIRT, the HBIRT tool really, really has helped, I think, people understand what what embodied carbon means for, for their but, but just But just on that point, where you, you, know, you, you say that the, 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 the mechanical bits of a building can be about 80% of its, of its impact. Mm. So how, how can people reasonably be claiming to be measuring the carbon footprint of a building if they're not if they're just ignoring all of the electrical systems and lifts yeah. and pipes and wires that it's, are inside it it's because it sounds a bit bonkers I, I know but it's because it's difficult right people often shy away from difficult things um and it, you know it's it, it, because mechanical systems are kind of, you know some of them are quite complex they think oh well, well we'll leave that we'll leave that out or you know the and it's true you know especially with a new build you know the structure the facade they have, they have a massive impact with the embodied carbon and so, so quite rightly that's where the industry is focused first 
Um, and I suppose I would say the um, the architectural industry, maybe you, maybe maybe you'd agree, Louisa, has really taken up this embodied carbon kind of um, theme over the last few years and really pushed it in a great way. And therefore, I think people have the language around embodied carbon of other building elements that, um, that are typically sit more with the architect. We've got a lot, had a lot of upskilling on that, but I think. I think MEPs, um, so building service engineers, uh, have been kind of lagging on that. And that's where I've really tried to kind of focus and, and, and bring that up because we, we really need to consider that when we make decisions. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like, you know, typically, you know, let, let's be honest, Clara, historically, the, the, the MEP engineers are never never the, the sexiest gang at the no. party. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always, you know, it's, it's particularly architects, Louisa, you know, architects, they're they've got big egos haven't they they're, they're the kind of the star attacks the rock stars of, of the piece designing the buildings they're the they're, everything's on the on the front face but it, it's it's changing a little bit now isn't it because people are louisa they're, they're becoming a little bit more cognizant of all the bits and pieces inside probably as, as as clara says highly impactful when when talking about climate impact yeah, I think we're having to justify ourselves a bit more and, and make much more careful decisions. As you say, it's there, there's one element of the architectural profession that has, you know, that 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 maybe presents itself as the ego, as the star architect. But um, you know, some of the things that our our, car, our carbon measuring tool HBIRT has taught us is that it's not until you start visualizing the impact of those decisions um that you really know where the where the biggest loads are coming from. Um and I think, you know, the things that have been telling for us are it's often the hidden parts of the building. It's not actually the finished material. It's everything that's holding it up. And and the decision, fundamental decisions you can make about the scale of the building, the footprint of the building, the, um, you know, requiring a transfer structure, for example, because you want to create, an, an, you know, an enormous cantilever. These things are big and bold and create beautiful architecture, but they, you know, they also create carbon emissions and and then not unfortunately aligned with combating the climate emergency so everything's Mm. a balance and i suppose that's partly why we ended up developing our hbert tool into a whole life carbon tool because um these things aren't just isolated elements so operational carbon shouldn't be looked at in um isolation from from the embodied carbon um the decisions that and and actually we found it really helps you know, with team collaboration as well, if you're discussing these metrics as a whole team rather than the engineer doing their bit and the MEP and then the architect looking at it in the whole encourages those conversations which should be happening but perhaps aren't happening as Mm. as frequently. Yeah, and I would say it's like, I mean, I am an engineer, so there is part of me that does love an Excel spreadsheet. You don't I'm, have to apologise. You don't. You've, you know, people, not... people can't see the apologetic face you've got <laughs> right now, but it's, it's fine. You don't have to apologise. I do. I do like a bit of work in Excel, but for me, I don't get excited about doing calculations and I'm not I don't and I'm not saying everybody should be doing way more calculations and spending way more time on this and make spending way more fee it's just about doing the calculations so you understand you get a gut feeling about what's right and then you can and then you can implement that on projects and that's what I think is a really important thing here um I think both Louise and I are really doing is learning from this to apply it to projects so that we can make quick easy decisions to that fundamentally massively impact the carbon Hmm. And, and obviously one of the, the big trends we're going to see over the next three, four years of the property cycle is a huge focus on 
repositioning refurbishing buildings and 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 i think certainly others that, that we've spoken to on this podcast suggest that we're going to see a real polarization in the commercial office market just as we saw in retail about 10 years ago the good will, will be good and and anything less than good will be will be bad and we'll see a certainly start to see a brown discount as as people have talked about it on uh, on real estate where clara do you do you see, see some of the opportunities around refurbishment um because i mean some people might look at it and go well we're not going to touch that but on you know on a basic level uh, 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 the greenest building is one that, that you haven't had to build from the ground up right yeah that's right and i think I think what will change is is how we how we approach this kind of thing. You know, I I think that in a few years' time we're not going to be building any new buildings. It's all going to be refurbishment, and some of it will be deep refurbishment. You know, you might you might go back to the structure, um, but that's much better than better than knock it, knocking it down. And the the embodied carbon savings from doing that are are really great. And I would say, you know, when you when you work on um, fit out, especially with commercial fit out, what's really important is to make sure that your services are flexible. Make sure that you're using connectors that are universal and not product What does that mean? So, 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 so in, in simplify it a little bit for some, some listeners. So mm. when making flexible services, what does that mean? So it's about thinking that if you're going to put in some some energy into this, some kind of materials into this, some metal, some plastic, that you're making sure that you don't have to replace that. You know, even if the office floor plate changes or the retail space switches owner, that you don't have to replace it, that you might, you know, that it means that you can just adapt it. You have universal fittings, which means that you can take off a product and put another one on rather than take rather than rip out the whole system. So it's a bit having a having a more of a kind of circular economy type approach to design and, and installation from the beginning. Um, and I think it's really exciting to bring um, you know, we're, we're moving much more kind of forward with BIM integration. And so you can look at material passports, which means that each um, each bit of each product or each steel beam or each fan or unit can have a tag tag that says what it actually is. And that means that you can reuse it much more in the future rather than just ripping it out and starting from scratch. So, there are so is things- that potential, potentially a massive Argos catalogue of building components that will tell you the carbon emissions of each screw and tile? Is that is that was that where we're going? I think it's not necessarily about the carbon emissions, but it's about the usefulness. It's about um, if you understand the um, specification of a certain product, then you'll be able to reuse it. Um, you know, often with, for instance, a steel I-beam, if you don't know its structural loading and capacity, if it's in an existing building, you'll have to take it down and maybe you can make a railing out of it, but you won't mm. be able to use it as a steel I-beam again. You know, and what's really important with circular economy is keeping things in the same level of servicing, not downcycling. And that's where these, these bin material passports can really come into it. So what what and what so what what that means is if you understand what's in a building, when that comes to the end of its life, you can reuse those parts and not just melt them down. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's about the client thinking of their building as a financial asset, not yeah. something that you live in or occupy for a few years and then you know make make a new one. Um, well, I think I think I think people do, and I think that you know that's the whole focus of of particularly commercial real estate and, and housing as well but but your point louise and more is that um your point is that people need to think beyond the end of of that initial 20 25 year period and actually look at the components as disassembled parts 
Yeah, yeah. So we're moving much more as an industry towards design for deconstruction and having an awareness mm. of how things are put together so they can be taken apart again. And that's part of this material passporting. So composite material is a huge barrier we've found to circular yeah. economy. Um, warranties and understanding the life cycle of things and how long they've been in use and how long they have to go. That's another been another barrier. And simply finding materials, you know, having a network or a database of these so if you know if if, if clients got um, perhaps more used to doing pre-demolition audits and that was fed into a database, you know you'd have contractors sourcing um, sort of reused products, if you like, which would save them and the client money potentially and and mm. add income to a client. So there's there's some really interesting concepts there that that um, are ripe for exploring. I think the other thing looking at the commercial market is that replacement cycles are. Um, especially in the fit out mm-hmm. and Clara hinted at the MEP um, elements but we notice it also in finishes and FF&E etc so that while the shell and the core of the building maybe um, you know have, have a huge longevity um, the finishes are often disposed of before the end of their life so that's another perhaps mindset change that we're going to see over the next few years. So Clara just just as we draw to a close what are some of the questions that that investors should be asking their supply chain so you've got you know all of the 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 big fund managers are taking turns to roll out these audacious net zero pledges and and many uh you know and many that that are coming forward with with great strategies we we spoke to aviva uh on 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 the first episode of this series to to talk about that with with ed dixon and we've got forthcoming conversations with nrep and blackrock and others you know for a company looking at creating a a a, a meaningful climate strategy yeah give give me three of the key considerations that 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 you're able to help people with i suppose um don't think too far into the future um we can make a lot of changes now would be my first thing so so decide what you're what you need to change this year and to 2025 um make some key targets, uh, key performance indicators that you can track. I would say engage everybody in your business about setting the targets. People are only going to implement targets if they're excited about them. So you need to really make sure that people, it comes from everybody who's who's working in that um, area. And um, make sure that you don't miss anything out. Think about all of your scopes, you know, think about um, your employees um, travel think about your embodied carbon think about scope three and 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 how important do you see technology becoming in helping measure this stuff in helping report because again from an investment perspective that that you know back to your 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 uh your denial about loving spreadsheets obviously <laughs> many many people listen to this absolutely they go to bed with their excel sheet <laughs> they probably still got the original cd-rom box um and and it's all about reporting and all about benchmarking so how will technology help accomplish that i mean it it has it has it has its place and it makes things simple and it makes things means that you don't have to um you know look at all different bits of paper of your energy bills you know it means that you can you can have meters which track your energy consumption and you can track the energy consumption of all the different properties that you manage in a property portfolio and that can be brought together easily into a database so you can be clear about about what's happening from an energy point of view i think it potentially is not all about technology it's about human behavior as well and we've seen most of the successful projects is where the scope's defined really early on You've got a really committed client, but not only the client, the whole client body and the building manager is brought into the whole process. 
and it's about teaching people over a number of years how to optimize and use their buildings and that partnership's been a really important aspect as well as the technology yeah and i think often you hear in the papers and stuff like technology will save us we're going to do this will be fine don't worry about it but actually we all have to play our part and we have to think it's about a shift of mindset and it's about working together in it in a kind of slightly different way that you might be used to um and i think you know technology has its place it's not it's not going to save us Mm. But, I, but I mean, just, just to finish off, Clarissa, but obviously we are seeing regulations tightening. We are seeing much more progressive thinking from the public sector and, and you know, obviously some of the work you're doing in, in West Oxfordshire District Council and other councils uh, is really starting to prove that. So where should people be looking? What should people expect over the next couple of years if they're looking at acquiring sites for development, if they're looking at investing in projects? What are some of the things they should be thinking about that they may not have been a year ago? I suppose it's it's not looking at the at in from a compliance framework point of view. Um, we're going to be shifting. We're much shifting more towards an industry to kind of performance modelling and predictive analysis. So rather than saying, okay, yeah, well, we meet this percentage better than bad, like building regulations, you need to say, okay, we're going to we predict the energy consumption is going to meet this target our, our energy budgets to fit with our, our kind of renewables in the UK and we can predict our embodied carbon and bring that into the mix so it's much more kind of robust way of analyzing and making decisions and um, before typically people make decisions based on how it affects uh, the indicators that you need in building regulations and in policy but that doesn't actually drive positive change so um, it's it, you look at it through a different lens. I think there's a few strategic thoughts as well around, um, you know, transport links, for example, looking at scope three, Clara mentioned it before. And, um, you know, whether you're, whether you're potentially going to go for an on-site or off-site renewable strategy and offsetting, um, those choices will start to become much more pressing, I think, in the strategic decision-making about master planning a, yeah. a commercial development rather than just thinking that location's great you're going to have to think at a much bigger scale I think to make a success of this and I think it's about also the kind of cross benefits of this you know it's not all of this getting to net zero everyone thinks oh it's going to just cost more and there's going to be problems it's more complex it's like yeah but if you reduce energy consumption you reduce you might be reducing electricity infrastructure you're reducing those costs there you know there's a lot of um, benefits when, when, you, when you're thinking um, a bit wider about about this and yeah and, and obviously that clearly offers up, offers up um, more commercial space if you're using less of mm. it for plants and machinery. Um, so what you're talking about is people being having their feet held to the fire a little bit more over the next the next few years. So, uh, Louisa, one final question before we go. If we're looking back over the last years, what have been some of the initiatives that have made the biggest impact in the marketplace, in in, in moving behavior forward we obviously epcs took hold eventually despite being a relatively uh you know relatively static modest judgment of performance mies has has had a bigger impact but from your perspective as a designer what do you think has created the the, the biggest movement of change um I think it's no longer feeling embarrassed. It's the fact that you're pushing on an open door. You used to mention it in a meeting and they'd see the pound signs and just shut you down. Um, and I think the media has helped a lot with that. 
Extinction Rebellion, whatever you think about their methods, they've heavily publicised it. We've got the Greta effect, the UK Government Climate Change Act, which, you know, to a sense, you know, made it official, if you like. Um, what about what about all this sort of anti-architectures, anti-architects designing airports? That that's That's been another one of these... Uh, areas a bit of a I sticky think, one yeah i mean that's a fascinating fascinating discussion should we be design should we be attempting to design airports in a climate friendly way if that's even possible or, or or looking at other ways of designing transport infrastructure you know i mean hawkins brown does an awful lot of um of rail travel and and increasingly so in our master planning team looking at active mobility so um i think we've seen a huge drop in carbon emissions this year through not you know, through not flying. Um, I suppose the other aspect of looking at your question about the initiatives over the last 10 years, I think alongside a lot of the good things that have happened over the last year, there's also some really, there's some missed goals, if you like. There was the net zero carbon hub that was set up and then disbanded um, before it had really got going. We lost a lot of that knowledge. We lost the roadmap. We lost the code for sustainable homes. Um, you know, it, it feels that there's a lot of missed opportunities and also, you know, we're playing catch up now. So, But the government's you know, looking at the future home standard, tightening that up despite the lobbying against it from the volume house builders. So that, man, that's still in play. It's just, surely it's just under a different name, isn't it? Well, and I would, I would say that, um, again, that's been delayed and not to a small part through, um, through some of the campaigns that Letty sort of spearheaded at the beginning of, um, of last year. Um, what were you campaigning for? I think there, we saw that um, you know the future home standard again was potentially another missed opportunity, um, and yeah, there was a huge right. amount of industry enthusiasm and outrage such that we've not really seen before. The number of people I think that that Letty and I'll hand over to Clara in a minute because she spearheaded that campaign really. Um, the number of people that um, that consulted on on that document was um, yeah. amazing, considering the technicality of it. I'll hand over to Clara now because I think I think we were we were just um, worried that we weren't yeah using this new update of regulations to to the best of the, our advantage as a, as a country, um, and certain changes were being made that might have that had an unintended consequences that weren't properly thought through. Um, also, it was it was suggested that local authorities, their power to set their energy strategy would be taken away, which was really worrying. So we did a lot of campaigning as Letty and over 2000 people submitted a consultation response more than uh, from our from our industry more than had in the last consultation. I think that's partly due, due to the efforts with Letty and ACAN and Architects de Glare. So um, no, we were really pleased by that um, volume of responses. I, I think it's kind of interesting, though. Um, we've just we, we just completed a bit of research um, for Bayes on the direction of SAP as part of a consortium project, um, and we were looking at how the relationship between compliance and um, best practice is different in different countries throughout the world. In the UK, we have compliance, which you have to just do, and then best practice is really kind of divorced from that. As I said before, you know, looking at um, performance modelling, um, looking at passive house, looking at neighbours, and kind of European countries such as Denmark and Norway and Germany and Sweden, they have they have the same metrics and they look through it all through the same lens. They have the same model and you have to just meet a certain level for building regs and, and a better level for, for best practice. And that makes it also much simpler that everyone's speaking the same language. And I really think the UK needs to kind of work towards that. Um, there's some really exciting examples of best practice as well in, you know, in Washington, 
Passive House is a compliance route for new buildings. In, in San Francisco, if you meet Passive House, then you get fast track approval. Um, in some other states in the US, you can have more, you can have higher density if you meet um, low energy use requirements. So they have a very different approach in, in some states in Canada and US, which are really great. And they bring some other things into it. In the Canadian Green Building Council's zero carbon standard, they have a, a design certification and an in-use certification. You have to measure your embodied carbon. You have to offset your embodied carbon. They talk about peaks. They go really big. You know, we talk about annual energy use. The future is talking about peak usage because that's you've got issues with capacity. And so um, they're, they're way ahead of us over there. Thank you then to Clara Bagnall, George Melamenta and Louisa Bowles from Hawkins Brown. To catch other episodes in our ongoing ESG series, please go to uh, PropCast at, uh, on Spotify or Apple. Please subscribe. Uh, please comment. Give us, tell us what you think. Give us some feedback, good or bad. Uh, please do send any suggestions to info at blackstock.co.uk. And you can also share your views online, tweet us uh, and, and connect via LinkedIn as well. But thanks very much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode where we'll talk uh, more about the arts world, the world of music and culture and how social value uh, measurement is, is going to be playing a much more critical role in companies ESG strategies over the next few years. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thanks a lot for listening.